This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, August 14th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Jordan Wathen, the Motley Fool's financials expert and all-around wonderful, wonderful person. How's it going, Jordan? It's going great after that introduction. How are you, Gabby? Good. I'm glad that I could make your day a little bit better. Um, so today's show is something that I know everyone has been dying to hear, which is BDC earnings. And just in case you're curious, BDC stands for Business Development Company or Corporation. Um, and I made a mistake once many moons ago on a show to never define what BDC was on that show. So for all you people out there, Business Development Corporation. Woo! Um, so earnings, we're we're pretty much done with earnings for the season, but that means that we know everything and we can give you a very cohesive look at what happened with BDCs in this last quarter. Are you excited, Jordan? I'm super excited. Me too. Okay, so let's start with a question that, just in case for listeners who haven't heard any of our eight million BDC shows, um, what is a BDC? So, a business development company, the one way to think about a BDC is that it's a basically a closed-end fund that holds debt and equity investments in private businesses around the United States. So, typically, a business development company's core customer will be a business that needs financing for one reason or another. Um, that's The business itself is too small for maybe the Wall Street financing machine. And the loan they need is perhaps too risky for banks to underwrite. So banks are very limited in the kind of loans they can write now because, you know, as a consequence of the financial crisis and what have you. So business development companies have really stepped up to fill the void of financing small businesses that are basically too risky for banks to lend to per the regulators. Yeah, and Wall Street's not interested in them because they're not some sort of fancy, dancy tech unicorn thing. They're like as we've discussed a couple times on the show, they're like a mattress store in the Midwest or a bowling alley in Pennsylvania, you know? Right, right. So they're typically the kinds of companies that private equity firms buy out. So mattress companies are a good one. Um, the biggest mattress company out there has basically shuffled through like five or six hands in the past 30 years and all helped to money that was raised privately, not on Wall Street, but from companies like business development companies that lend money off the private market or off the public markets. Yeah. Um, BDCs are also really interesting because about 90% of their portfolios are invested in debt, um, with about 10% invested in equity stakes and alternative investments. Um, so, as you can imagine, BDCs become kind of risky because 90% of their portfolio is debt. <laughs> Right. So when you think about how they invest or the companies they invest in, a typical, you know, middle of the road loan from a business development company will yield something like 8%, for example. And relative to say what you can earn on a 10-year treasury, which is like 2%, you know, when you get four times the yield, you're starting to talk about loans that are pretty darn risky, uh, all things considered. Yeah, definitely. And that's why every time 
literally every time we do a show on BDCs, we're like, man, BDCs are really risky. We don't like them. We probably would never invest in them. And yeah, then- I mean, they're not the worst things in the world. It just takes someone who, you know, is really dedicated to following them and understanding them. Uh, it's not so much, um, they aren't as well covered, I guess, as other financial companies. Yeah, definitely. It's just funny because every time we talk about them, someone writes in and they're like, I'm really interested in investing in BDCs. What do you look for when you invest in BDCs? And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> and I well, feel right. so bad because I know that they want like a longer answer, but I'm just like, I don't, I just don't invest in them. Like, I don't. I don't follow them closely enough to ever in a hundred years feel comfortable investing in them. True. I think I think more so than other industries, to, to understand one BDC, you truly have to follow most of them um, to understand how they, you know, connect and work together. Uh, more so than say a bank, like a bank in Missouri has nothing to do with a bank in Florida, generally speaking, right? Yeah. Um, a BDC though, it could operate out of the East Coast and lend on the West Coast and have deals with other BDCs. Um, and so it just takes an, a universal understanding, I guess, to understand one. Which gives me the perfect segue into the second part of our show, which is um, talking about the big players in private fi- finance. Um, I'm just going to kind of list them off. But you know what we could do? We could do like free word association. All right, I've got three. So I'm going to say their names one at a time, and you tell me the first word that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay. 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 Antares. Uh, they're the Goliath. Okay. Golub. Uh, really clean. Aries. <laughs> uh, mm, the Goliath of the public markets. Okay. All right. I feel like that actually was not a bad description of those three BDCs. Um, Antares is actually the old GE Finance. Um, and as you mentioned, Antares and Golub are kind of like in the same space. Which is, you know, like you said, super safe, clean, first lean, unitranched right. corner of the private finance world. Right. So, so Golub and Antares, they they kind of work um, on the higher end, I guess. The the really clean, like the really clean loans from big private companies that just want to get a deal done. So rather than one of the reasons why someone goes to Golub or Antares is because they can get a deal done with one signature and just be done with it. So if they need a $400 million loan to acquire another business, for example, the a business could turn to Golber and Tares and just get $400 million. They don't have to break it up into say $300 million of a first lien loan that banks might take up and then $100 million of a second lien loan. No, it's just oh. $400 million unitronch deal and done. Can I ask right? you something real quick um, to explain? Can you can you explain the difference between like liens and tranches and all that good stuff yeah. for our listeners? Yeah, that would be important. So a first lien loan is basically, uh, it's a loan that sits at the top of the capital structure. They get paid back first in the event a business liquidates, right? So banks are generally in the business of making first lien loans. Um, unless they're too big, in which case they go to BDCs because they become a little too risky for bank balance sheets, right? Right. So then you have the second lien loan, which sits below a first lien loan. So this would be like the difference between a, a bond and then a subordinated bond. A first lien loan sits on top and it gets paid back first. It's generally less risky, has more support from things like assets that could be sold in the event of liquidation. Whereas a second lien loan gets paid back only after the first lien loan gets paid back in full. Right, and then a liquidation event. And then there's also something called mezzanine financing. Yeah, and mezzanine basically, see, it's complicated because mezzanine would could be second lien or it could you know sit below a second lien loan. Right. Right. Yeah, 
Um, but mezzanine, the important thing to know about mezzanine stuff is that that generally sits right on top of the equity, right? So it's last to get paid back of all the debt just before the equity uh, or the stock ownership. Right, exactly. So you, you have like these kind of different tiers, I guess, um, of loans that you could get. And then what is a tranche? So, well, Unitranche or Unitranche is basically combining the elements of first lien, second lien, and a mezzanine loan all into one. So instead of chopping a loan into three pieces, you know, you've got the first, second, and then mez, you would just have one Unitranche loan, for instance. And that would be the whole bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, perfect. Um, okay. So I feel like everyone is good on vocab. So um, let's talk a little bit about so we, we talked about Antares and Golub who are interested in these first lien Unitranch uh, loans. Um, let's talk a little bit about Aries Capital, which is more interested in second lien loans. Yeah, so Aries Capital's kind of been pushed into the second lien business because Golub and Antares kind of fight for the, the top of the first lien kind of stuff. Um, and basically, they're becoming, I guess, kind of the, the niche player here is like, if, if you can't get enough money from a bank on your first lien, then you go talk to Aries and, you know, they'll pick you up with some more leg- leverage on a second lien loan. Um, basically, Aries saw the potential to basically be the big fish in this little pond. So they have become, you know, rows to fill that void, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like over the last few years, there's been a fair bit of consolidation basically in in BDCs. It's interesting because there's a lot more BDCs than there were before, but like the power players have started to emerge because this isn't a very old industry by any means. No, it's not an old industry at all. I mean, really, if you think about it, the the people who pioneered the private equity space have really basically pioneered the BDC space. And the people who pioneered the, you know, private equity in the 80s, they're still around today. Like this is still just a one generation business, so to speak. Uh, the people who were big then are still big now. Uh, Golub and Aries, basically, they're the two that actually run BDCs. So they're the ones that are basically the giants and you know the sector that we can invest in as people buying stocks off the stock market. Yeah, and what I was saying earlier is that there are more BDCs today than there were in the past, but it hasn't been around. The, the industry hasn't been around for a long time, so it's not that surprising. But you're starting to see like the dynamics um of the last couple decades like play out and you've ended up with like these really three this these three big power players which is it's just really interesting um yeah i mean yeah it's just cool because the way the structure you you wouldn't get this if you were just following it you know just you know i don't know giving it you know 20 minutes a month or something it wouldn't really make sense the way these deals work out but if you chase these deals across the portfolio you'll see that Aries will do something, and Golub will do something, and then it'll get sold on to the rest of the BDCs. And it's something you'll only really notice if you really pay attention to each little portfolio company that these guys invest in. Yeah, and let's actually get into that, because um, like you said, Aries or Antares or Golub will make a deal, they'll do all the work, and then they'll sell the loan on down the line to another BDC. And this is kind of what banks do with like your mortgage, for example. They'll um, issue your mortgage, and then they'll sell your mortgage to another company. Right. So, so yeah, that's, that's actually a good, that's a good uh, example. Um, you know, in this corner of the world, what, what will happen is Golub or Aries will say, you know, look, we can put up $500 million for this loan. They'll do the loan and then they might only hold on to say 50 million of it and pass on the rest to other BDCs and collect an origination fee of 1% on it. So if you think about how the economics right work, right, you start with a $500 million loan, 
Um, maybe they take a point, a percentage point on origination, so they score a $5 million fee there. And then let's say they only hold on to $50 million of it and you know the rest of it gets passed on. They end up earning a $5 million origination fee on what amounts to a $50 million loan, which is basically 10%. I mean, that's a huge, you know, it's a huge, uh, I guess, credit boost. There's a huge boost to the economics of the loan for Aries or Golub. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting because um, we're kind of talking about like private finance here with Antares, Golub, and Aries, but then Aries and Golub also have BDCs that they can sell these loans to as well, right? Right, right. So Golub Capital, I mean, like if you think about its BDC in terms of all the assets it manages, the BDC is a really small part, right? I mean, you're talking like $20 billion of AUM, for example, and then the BDC itself might only have like a billion. You know, it's a small, it's a much smaller uh, piece of the whole structure there. Same thing with Aries. I mean, Aries runs a ton of money and the BDC in terms of its income is really important, but in terms of all the funds it manages, it's not really that, it's not a huge piece of the Aries pie. Yeah, it, I feel like this can get really confusing to listeners because like you have these private finance companies, right, which is the the big 3 that we've been talking about over and over again. And then those those private finance companies sometimes have BDCs attached to them and sometimes they don't. Um and then right. there's also BDCs that exist independently of them and do similar work to them but are not but are but are BDCs. It's it's very it can be very confusing, which is Right. It's it's on a much smaller scale. The, the BDCs that operate independently of like, so Aries and Gold, for instance, they say they benefit from the platform, which is the platform they have at the management company to basically make all these loans. They have piles and piles of money in different formats and different kinds of funds, whereas there are BDCs that are literally just a BDC. You know, yes. and that's that's all the extent of their money that they have available to lend out. Yes, and listeners, if you're still confused, email us, and we will try to give you a better explanation. And talking about platforms, uh, let's talk a little bit about genetic platforms. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. What will be your DNA destination? Okay. So now that we've gotten some of the assigned copy out of the way, I want to tell you about my personal experience with 23andMe. Uh, some of you may know that I'm kind of a huge bio nerd, so I really enjoyed using the service. My parents got it for me for Christmas, um, and it was a present. It was great, and uh, so one of the reasons I really liked it was one because it confirmed to me that I am actually my parents' child. So that was pretty sweet. I was pretty excited to to learn that. And two, they have like this crazy long report section that has all sorts of different things and it's got kind of like silly things and it's got more serious things including like are you a carrier or do you have a variant for all sorts of uh, genetically linked diseases and it's not actually a report telling you like you definitely have this disease or you don't have this disease. It's just like whether or not you might carry a gene for the disease. But it's also got kind of sillier things like, are you lactose intolerant? Which I am, and it predicts that I am likely intolerant, which is pretty cool. Um, it also has other stuff like, do I have a cleft chin or <laughs> freckles? 
Um, and it gets both of those right, too. Uh, it did get the widow's peak wrong, though. I have a crazy widow's peak. I guess you can't see me in real life, but I have one. It doesn't think I have one, but I do. <laughs> um, but it's also cool because, like, like I said, it's also got some of those um, disease types like cystic fibrosis or Bloom syndrome, which I never heard of. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of window into a whole nother world. Um, there's also this thing about Neanderthal. DNA, which is cool. I don't have a lot of Neanderthal DNA. I have less than the average user of 23andMe.com, which is, I'm sure, a relief for my parents, along with anyone that I have ever taught. Not that there's anything, nothing, nothing against Neanderthals. I'm sure they were perfectly lovely Neanderthals. Um, I don't know if you can say people, because they weren't really humans. And that leads us into a deeper philosophical discussion that I will shelve for another time. Turning back to BDCs, let's talk about uh, externally and internally managed BDCs. Um, BDCs are really interesting because most companies, the management is inside the company, um, which makes it sound a little bit like the killers inside the house. But <laughs> it's actually, you know, it's just like you have your CEO and your board of directors and all these people who are managing like where the company goes inside the company. BDCs don't necessarily have that. Right. So, well, and think about when you think about a BDC, let's like let's give it something that is, you know, similar um, like Vanguard's index fund, for instance. It doesn't it doesn't have any people who work and draw salaries from the index fund itself. Uh, those, you know, those, the people who manage it and, you know, take care of it, they, they're paid by Vanguard and the index fund just pays fees to Vanguard so that Vanguard can pay those people. Right. So that's how most BDCs work is that they are externally managed, which means they pay a fee for the services of their manager. And then their manager uses that fee money to pay, uh, the people who work and, you know, make the investment decisions for the business development company. Yeah, yes, and um, there are two types, right? Because there's also internally managed BDCs. Right. So a minority, a very small minority of BDCs are internally managed, and that means that the BDC basically, rather than pay a fee to an outside management company, it hires its staff and pays them directly from its own income statement. So there's no asset management manager involved. If it needs a credit analyst, it goes and hires them, and the salary that it pays them will appear on you know the income statement as you know, salaries expense, for example. It's really interesting because there's there's pros and cons to having an externally and an internally managed BDC. Um, But I think it's kind of generally accepted that externally managed BDCs are generally a better idea than internally managed BDCs. But BDCs are like internally managed is the way to go. Yeah, I mean, this has been debated like endlessly. I don't know if there's a perfect answer. I think it really just depends on the ability of the shareholders to actually enforce, you know, some consistency. So there's there's one BDC in particular, and we'll pick on it because it kind of bugs me. Uh, it's, it <laughs> operates. It's, it's Hercules Capital, and what they do is they lend to venture companies. So think technology companies in Silicon Valley that need, you know, a debt investment. That's you know that's Hercules bread and butter. Um, and Hercules has basically said to its investors that. You know, for a long time they were inter- they are internally managed this day, and for a long time they've cheerleaded that concept. They've said, "Look, you know, the internal management structure is amazing because, uh, you know, we can keep our costs low, and you know, just like a BDC or an index fund, the lower the expenses, generally the better." And so Hercules operated with this low cost model, 
And recently, in the past year, actually this year, they decided that, no, wait, you know what, we don't like internal management anymore, and uh, we're thinking about externalizing, and here's how we're going to do it. And of course, this caught a lot of people off guard, because when you change your tune after singing it for you know eight years or however long it's been, uh, it, really, it really shakes the markets a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so we talked a little bit about the benefits of being internally managed, like having lower fees and costs being less, but um, sometimes with internally managed BDCs, because management gets a cut every time they complete a deal, sometimes they're incentivized to make deals that don't really make sense for investors, which is why some people advocate for externally managed BDCs. Yeah. I mean that goes for externally managers too. Externally managed BDCs too is that you know they can do things in ways that you know reward the manager instead of shareholders. One of the big risks I think with internal management uh, specifically is that uh, they can ha- they have the ability to issue insiders stock options from the BDC, so they can basically pay themselves. And one company that did this so badly and just like to an extent that it was just pathetic was a company by the name of American Capital, and that just got bought out recently by Ares Capital. Um, but they had just issued, I mean, million, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in stock option uh, deals. Whereas with an externally managed BDC, it's you get, you know, you get the one percent management fee or two percent management fee, and you know the incentive fee, which is twenty percent of returns, and that's all you get, right? It's contractual. But with internally managed BDCs, they can really hit the stock option comp pretty hard, um, and you know, skim off a lot of money off the top. But I mean, the same is true with an externally managed company. Hercules wants to go externally managed, and their fee structure they, you know, put out there. The market said, "Hey, wait, this is going to cost more. You know, expenses are going to go up. We we don't dig this, right?" So yeah, the uh, their valuation just plummeted. If if you look at a stock chart, there there'll be two big drops, and it'll be when they proposed this idea, and then again when they started talking about it again just recently. Uh, investors don't like it, and I think they're right not to like it. Yeah, and again, circling back to our initial point, this is complicated, and this is why I'm like, I'm not interested in BDCs, because I don't follow them anywhere near as close as Jordan, and I'm just like, this is just ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing, too, is like for a long time, and I I don't follow Hercules that well, Uh, it wasn't one that I, you know, followed that closely, but I knew, you know, just from you know following the industry as a whole, that they were a big proponent of this internally managed structure. And when they come out and say, "No, we want to go external," and you know, they start talking about how they're underpaid, basically, and they they talk about how you know, basically, is the equivalent to quote unquote slavery. Uh, it's just like one of those things where it just really catches you off guard, and all the people that you thought were good guys in this industry, you you start to wonder again. Sorry, and also listeners, just in case you were wondering why I was laughing about Jordan saying. I'm going to pick on Hercules for a little bit. And then I laughed again when he talked about American capitals because Jordan Jordan sees you see right and wrong. <laughs> you really do. And you are not bashful in saying it. And sometimes people who represent companies write into us very angrily about things that Jordan has said. But the problem is that you're generally very, very correct whenever you say something. So I was like, oh no, what is he going to say? Am I well, going to get any mean emails? <laughs> well, it, you're not going to get any mean What It just bugs me because for a long time, these BDCs have pitched this product as an investment you know, that's great for seniors, it's great for retirement income, and it, and it is, and it could be, and it should be. I mean, this this is an industry that could be really good for a lot of people. 
But the problem is, is that you've got people, you know, wearing suits to work every day who are really educated, went to these amazing schools, and then when they go to work, they just like lose their morals, it seems. It just really drives me nuts to think that, you know, some guy who just wanted to retire is getting ripped off by, you know, someone who already has enough money in the world. It, it just blows my mind. I don't know. It bugs me. I, I see. This is one of the reasons that I love working with Jordan. I love working with you. I think it's great. I, I love I love the fire. It makes me feel alive. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, and so one of the things that you mentioned is that this could be good for people who are retired, and that, that's partially because BDCs are a little bit like uh, real estate investment trusts or REITs in that they have to pay out a certain percent of their um, taxable income as a dividend. Um, so you, that's one of the reasons people are so interested in BDCs because like they have these crazy dividend yields, like 14% sometimes. Um, which is generally a bad idea. I think we've I think we've done a show in the past about how you should stay away from high yield things. Um, if not, probably should stay away from high yield things. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but mostly because they tend to be really risky, um, and that's what you end up with with these BDCs. Right. Is it, yeah. I mean, that's why that's why people are so interested in them. I think like the lowest yielding BDC is something like you know seven percent, six percent, seven percent, which. At six or seven percent, that's already three times the S and P average, right? So the return you're getting just from the dividend yield is just massive, um, com- comparatively speaking. So it, it sucks a lot of people in, especially you know people who see the high end, the, the BDCs that yield you know fourteen or fifteen percent, usually from a super levered you know balance sheet. There's a lot of risk in there, and uh, I don't think it's truly appreciated how much risk you're taking when you you know start shopping based on yield. Yeah. Um- Quick question. Did you want to talk any more about Hercules and the CEO, or would you like to move on to Fifth Street Finance and Oak Tree? I think I said enough about him. Okay. I don't want to to push too many buttons. Okay. Um, Jordan Wathen, button pusher. Uh, I'll I'll make a sticker for you that says that next time you come (laughs) to the office. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's talk about Fifth Fifth Street Finance and Oak Tree. Yeah, so Fifth Street Finance is an interesting one. it, so, how do I start with this? Speaking of pushing buttons, Fifth Street, their BDCs were just terrible performers. Like, there's no way around it. They, one analyst on another conference call, I could tell that he was pointing at Fifth Street, but he basically said, I wouldn't trust them to underwrite a loan. And, you know, that's the long and short of it. And their underwriting performance had just been disastrous. Uh, and then, of course, there were the shareholder lawsuits, the SEC enforcement, whatever, all these, you know, all these people looking into it and saying, look, this is bad. And so then it's curious, of course, that a guy, uh, that Oak Tree comes in and says, you know what, we'll take over the management of these, you know, these BDCs you have, Fifth Street, and we'll pay you $320 million to do it. Because, of course, if you know Oak Tree, if you know anything about them, it's founded by Howard Marks, who's probably the most respected debt investor in the world. And the fact that he would get involved, I guess, in a deal to pay off Fifth Street's founder is really kind of interesting, I guess. From the perspective of uh, you know who people like and dislike in the credit industry, yeah. So, listeners, this has clearly been a pretty weedsy episode in the weeds, um, but we're just going to keep going because it is really interesting. Um, and maybe one day you can listen back and be like, "Wow, that was a really interesting show." But if you've made it with us, made it made it this far with us, um, let's talk a little bit about. Howard Marks and what his possible motivations could be behind this. Like, what what do you think he's thinking? Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, every I've talked to, I talked to a lot of people in the industry, and I talk to a lot of people frequently in the industry, and no one can really wrap their heads around why Oak Tree's doing it this way. Um, 
One, one suggestion, I guess, is that it's really hard to start a BDC today. Uh, there were some there were some rules changed or passed, uh, basically, that would make it harder to sell high fee funds like this to retail investors. So I guess if you want to start a BDC today, or if you want to run a BDC, the only way to really do that is to buy one that exists. The easiest way to do it is just to buy one that, that exists. And the other reason is just that BDCs, you can, this is one like the few areas of finance where you can still make a ton of money. And not that, you know, people are underpaid in the financial industry by any means, but I mean, we're talking proverbial, like tons of money, like 2% asset management fees plus 20% of returns, true hedge fund fees, you know, BDCs still charge that in many cases. So this is one area where fees haven't gone down, despite the fact that fees are dropping for the rest of the industry, you know, for the rest of the asset management industry. So it doesn't surprise me that Oak Tree wants a piece of it. It just surprises me the way that they went into it to, you know, basically pay off someone who people generally regard as a bad guy just to uh, get its hands on a few funds to run. Yeah, I mean, potentially it's because Fifth Street is kind of in trouble, too. So maybe oh, yeah. maybe it was just a good deal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing too. Is you, you would think that I, I don't know. It just it just makes no sense to me because <laughs> there's another BDC. Let's you know, let's if we're gonna stay in the weeds, let's just do it. So there's another BDC by the name of Tick Capital. T I C C is the ticker symbol, and uh, they were rumored to sell that management contract to another asset manager for something like sixty million dollars. Okay, and it's a little smaller than Fifth Street, but it's not, you know, one fifth the size because Fifth Street was supposedly, you know, that deal is going to go for three hundred twenty million dollars. So it's just, it's just really interesting to me that it seems like Oak Tree really paid up for this. I, I, I don't quite understand it. But of course, remember we're talking about the management contracts. Oak Tree is not buying Fifth Street's assets. They are buying the right to manage those assets. So it's a totally different ball game, I guess. Ugh. So I'm actually I'm really interested to see how this turns out. And listeners, we will continue to follow this story as it develops. Um, thank you, Jordan, for bringing the truth as you always do. Um, I tried. <laughs> and thank you to Taylor Harris, today's rad producer. He's waving. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. And thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week. <laughs>